Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St Albans Five Docs Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Acknowledgement. Um, so, Brett let us in prayer so well, thank you Brett. And he mentioned Bounce and the MCP. So, so Bounce and the MCP are ministries that happen or bounce every week in the school term and the MCP every, every fortnight. And these are such great ministries um, and that take quite a bit of work to maintain. So I just want to put to you the people who work really hard to keep these ministries going. So Bounce, um, Megan, and, and then especially in term four, Erin. Takes a lot of work preparing stories and craft and songs and all sorts of things to make it happen. So thank you so much, Erin, for all and Megan for all that work. Um, especially in term four, Erin's been pregnant and getting more heavily pregnant and has been working so hard. So thank you. And also the MCP has involved the hard work of Deb, Susan, and Layla. And this involves rostering and, and making sure people are um, providing morning tea. So thank you for all the cake. Bakers who are producing cake for morning tea. It's a fantastic connecting point. I've been able to make it to the MCP every fortnight. And the, the ease at which I'm having significant conversations with people um, has been astounding. I, it's so easy. These people are not only wanting help with their low-cost groceries, but also they're, they're, they're asking questions. And I suppose as a pastor as well, they, they're really open to having these conversations. And so it's just they're, they're two great ministries. So on a Wednesday morning, there's a lot happening here and, and just... Big thank you and shout out to those who've been making those ministries happen. So we turn to this passage in Matthew chapter 11. And I'm going to start with a quote by a guy called Frederick Buchner. He's an American author who has recently passed away. And he said that if you don't have doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it alive and they keep it moving. Doubts. We often assume that doubts are the opposite of faith, but they're not. A faith without doubts is like a human body without antibodies. People go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask the hard questions. And people who are going to find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse overnight if they haven't, over the years, failed to listen patiently to their own doubts, which should be only discarded after long reflection. So doubts aren't there to wish away or to ignore. They're there to wrestle with. And not only our own doubts, but the doubts of our neighbours and our friends. We can't hold beliefs because we inherited them it's only when we struggle long and hard with the objections to faith that we might have that we're able to provide the grounds for our beliefs to skeptics, including the skeptic within us all. And if we've been through the process ourselves, we'll come to respect those who also doubt. So doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Doubt keeps faith alive. It keeps it moving. It makes faith stronger. That is, if you doubt right. There are, of course, different ways to doubt. As Tim said, we've come to the final week in our series looking at the, the Baptist, John the Baptist. And this series has all 
been all about shaking up the Christmas season, trying to help us not to settle into the usual pre-Christmas nostalgia and sentimentality as the ads on TV and the songs would have us do. John the Baptist simply doesn't fit our usual Christmas cheer, and that's a good thing. And so this morning we find John in the dark, probably stinking, in an underground Roman prison. There are no Christmas lights there. And if there's any biblical figure who should have no reason to doubt, it's John the Baptist. This is the man who was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born, who came out into the wilderness and with all boldness proclaimed the coming Messiah. He's the person who baptized the Son of God, who witnessed the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, and who heard the voice of God speak. Yet at the end of his life, while his strength ebbed away in this prison cell, he doubted. The question that he sent through his disciples to Jesus was this, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And so this morning we'll explore faithful doubting, faithless doubting and moving beyond doubt. Uh, We didn't read this verse, but verse 1 says, Now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and to proclaim his message in their cities. Now people who are paid to investigate the structure and organization of the book of Matthew tell us that this is a structural marker in the book. It marks the end of the previous section, this verse, which was Jesus instructing his disciples and revealing to the world who he was. It marks the end of that section and the start of a new section, which starts in chapter 11. It's a section all about responses to Jesus. And the first response to Jesus that we have is that of John the Baptist. So verse 2. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offence at me. So many of our doubts come from our deeply held assumptions beliefs or expectations. They're mostly unexamined until they cause problems, until they cause doubts. So when these deeply held assumptions, beliefs or expectations don't match reality, when there's a gap between those assumptions or expectations and reality, that gap is the cause of doubt. So for example, if I assume or expect that the Christian life will always be as exciting as it is in the first few months or couple of years, I'll likely be met with a reality that doesn't match that expectation. And the difference, the gap, will likely be the cause of doubt. Is this Christianity thing real after all? Was what I experienced genuine? And we all have these unexamined expectations that don't match the reality. My life wasn't meant to turn out this way. I was convinced God would come through on on X, getting a job or the spiritual life of our kids. I thought Christianity is all about love. Then why is the New Testament, why does it have these prohibitions on certain relationships? Or I thought it would be easier to be a Christian. I thought church would be more exciting. When our unexamined expectations don't match the reality, doubt is birthed. 
And the expectation that John the Baptist had was that the Messiah would be strong. So listen back to the words from Matthew chapter 3 that Ben took us through a few weeks ago. Matthew chapter 3. Listen to his words. After me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's an image of a strong person. Most people of the day, they had an expectation that the Messiah would bring judgment on evil and oppression and injustice. And the only way to do that, so they thought, was to be strong. Therefore, if Jesus is the Messiah, he should surround himself with strong people and probably lead some kind of popular political or even military uprising. That was their expectation. But it's very clear Jesus isn't anything like that. He surrounded himself and spends time with weak people. His forerunner is is in jail at the moment and is about to be squashed like a bug by Herod. John the Baptist's expectations didn't match the reality. And the first thing to notice is that Jesus doesn't look at John the Baptist doubting and say, how dare you doubt me? After all the divine revelation I've given you, after everything you've seen, how dare you doubt me? That's not what Jesus said, which is no surprise. The scriptures, especially the Psalms, are filled with people pouring out their doubts to God. Speaking of the Psalms in particular, one commentator writes this with this beautiful measuredness. He says, The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is witness to God's understanding. He knows that people speak. He knows, sorry, he knows how people speak when they're desperate. When it comes to Jesus, doubters are welcome. So on the one hand, he doesn't say to John the Baptist, how dare you? He's gentle. Doubt isn't a sign of moral defect. But on the other hand, Jesus doesn't acquiesce John the Baptist's doubt. He doesn't let John the Baptist go. He challenges him. He pushes back. Now, there's a lot to unpack in the answer he gives, but it's basically Jesus using a whole range of quotations from the book of Isaiah, quotations that John would have been very familiar with, to help reshape John's expectation. Jesus is basically saying, I welcome and hang out with the weak. I only work with weak people, the blind, the poor, the poor in spirit. My salvation is not a strong salvation for strong people who are worthy of it. My salvation comes through weakness. It is only for weak people who know they're not worthy of it and trust me. It's a bit of a paraphrase of his answer. And then comes the beatitude in verse 6. Blessed is anyone who takes no offence at me. Now, the Greek word underlying offence, the word for offence, is scandalised. When Jesus tries to lead us from our unexamined expectations through to stronger faith, there'll be a moment when we're tempted to hold on to our expectations and be offended or scandalised by the direction Jesus is taking us in. But Jesus says, blessed is anyone who takes no offence at me. Now, John the Baptist is an example of faithful doubting. The difference between faithful doubting and faithless doubting is what you do with your doubt. Faithful doubting goes to Jesus and pursues answers, seeks resolutions, hunts down the truth. Which is very different to the doubter who loves 
to doubt, who hold on to their doubt as if it's an example of how clever they are. Which leads us to verse 7 and the crowds. So this is faithless doubting. After John's disciples have left, had left, Jesus turns his attention to another set of disappointed expectations, those of the crowd. The crowd, some of whom had probably been baptized by John in the past and been captivated by what he had to say, had obviously come to doubt John's legitimacy. He was in prison. He was rotting away in a Roman prison. And so Jesus speaks into their expectations. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, the the reeds by the Sea of Galilee were a symbol of fertility, and they were on all Roman coins, at least in the area. It was as if Herod was saying, the Roman rule is meant to bring about this fertility. And so Jesus is saying, do you expect to see a Herod-style king out in the wilderness? A politician who would over-promise and under-deliver? Is that who you went went out to see? Verse 8. What did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. Surely you want more than that. Surely you want a prophet. Jesus goes on, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it said, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John was a prophet. In fact, Jesus says he was the greatest of all the prophets. John was more than a prophet in the sense that he plays a role in the events. He doesn't just speak about them. Like all the other prophets, he plays a role in the events. He's the Elijah figure that we read about in the Malachi passage. Promised who would prepare the way, who would lay the red carpet. And what's really interesting here is that Jesus isn't firstly referring to John the Baptist in his answer. The person he's really speaking about is himself. You see, Malachi's prophecy is perfectly clear that this figure, this Elijah figure, would prepare the way, lay the red carpet for the Lord himself, Yahweh, the holy God of the Old Testament. And Jesus is inviting the crowds to put two and two together. John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets, the one who prepares the way, which means that the one he's been testifying about is the Lord. It's it's, it's Yahweh. It's the one who was to come. Which is why even the least in the kingdom of God is is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the greatest of all old covenant people, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. It's the same reason that the least member of the royal household is greater than the most impressive public servant. It's all about who you're connected to and how. So Jesus is describing the reality, but that wasn't the crowd's expectation. Just like John, they expected one thing, but they got another. But unlike John, unlike John, instead of pursuing the truth, they simply sat on the sidelines. So look at verse 16. But to what will I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. Jesus is likening the crowd to a bunch of kids who want to play games, but they don't actually get involved. So there's a group of kids who play the flute. They want to play weddings. And so they start playing the flute, 
But all the other kids don't get involved. They're sitting on the sidelines, and so these kids who are playing the flute decide to play funerals. And they start wailing and wailing. But these kids just sort of watch them sitting on the sidelines. The passage goes on. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. With the crowds, the problem was whether it was wailing, so that is typified of John the Baptist's ministry, which is all about repentance, whether it's the wailing or it's the feasting. These crowds just wouldn't get involved. They wouldn't get off the sidelines and, and, and join the music, dance to the music. And, and this is faithless doubting. It's when we're happy to stand on the sidelines to not engage and pursue our answers, but instead hold on to our doubts because it's easiest to do that. It doesn't ask anything of us to hold on to our doubts. And it gives us a reason to actually stand on the sideline and lob criticisms from the sideline. All those Christians, so small-minded, so dour, so serious, hypocrites. It's easier to stand on the sideline and lob criticisms. Which leads us to the final point, Jesus' call to move beyond doubt. So right in the middle of the passage is one of the hardest sayings of Jesus. Verse 12. From John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Or another way to translate that, has forcefully advanced. And the violent take it by force. Now what does that mean? It's dense, and I suspect that Jesus is being deliberately ambiguous. On the one hand, I think Jesus is saying that the kingdom suffers violence. It suffers opposition. That is, John the Baptist, he's in prison, he's a messenger of the kingdom, prison. And Jesus, the king of the kingdom, is about to die. It suffers violence. But on the other hand, I think verse 12 means that the kingdom is connected to violence in the sense that it comes violently. It comes violently to people. But I think it's the violence of life. So what's, what's the violence of life? It's, it's surgery. What you want from the surgeon is to slice you open because that's the life-saving moment. And in that moment, you're totally vulnerable, totally at the disposal of the surgeon. You give up all control. I think Jesus is saying that you will never receive the kingdom of God unless you see that it will change everything. Here's the Lord of heaven, the one to whom the stars are like bits of dust is not our personal assistant. The only terms anyone comes to Jesus are on his terms and that means everything will change. It will do violence to your priorities. The kingdom of God will do violence to your commitments, your loves, your fears, your decisions, your relationships. It's the violence of life. And this is what it means to not stand on the sidelines. To do what John the Baptist did, to pursue your doubts, to engage Jesus with them. And when you do that, what will happen is that your doubts will change. They'll morph. Your doubts will morph from objections to deeper grasps of the issue along to stronger faith. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it alive and they keep it moving. But only if we let Jesus, in a sense, do violence to them, to shake them up, to lead us from offence or being scandalised by him to deeper trust. 
And so this last bit of the passage is really just an invitation for us to get involved, to, to, to jump in, to get off the sidelines and off the critic's chair and to dance to Jesus' tune. And as we move to the rhythm, we find that there are ways throughout doubt. And we become more and more enlivened by the music. The music which is the grace of God in the face of Jesus. Grace which means our sins forgiven and our eternal future is secured. Grace which means we're loved by the God of the universe more than we can even grasp. And so our souls are filled to the brim. Grace which lifts our eyes to be ambitious for others to also get involved and find life in the dance and the joy of Jesus. So that's the invitation of this passage. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you lived to a different tune, a tune of selfless love, a tune of truth and grace. And we pray that as we go about our lives, we might be led by your Holy Spirit to dance to this tune as well that we might find joy and hope in this tune and we might find ways through our doubt as we dance, as we get involved, as we jump in. Father, please help us be courageous and bold and trust you in all things. In the name of Christ, amen. Please stand and sing.